All right, everybody, today's episode is sponsored by Blind Barrels, a company that offers an exclusive blind whiskey tasting experience. Bob and I tried their product in season six, and it led directly to this ad because we are such huge fans of what they are doing. If you are interested in sampling the very best in American craft whiskey, then use our code FILM10 at their checkout for 10% off a yearly or quarterly subscription or even off a single box to try it out. And remember, if you're hunting for rare whiskeys, you can always buy the whiskey you've tried on their website, often at prices cheaper than MSRP. Check them out at blindbarrels.com and use code FILM10 for 10% off on your order. As we get into today's episode, I just want to take a second and remind you that there's a ton of extra content available to the members of Film and Whiskey Nation who support us through our Patreon. Check us out on patreon.com slash filmwhiskey. On today's Film and Whiskey, we are going to be scoring out director Clint Eastwood on five metrics to determine just what kind of director he is. While we're doing that, we're going to step on four whiskeys from Virginia Distillery Company, and then we're going to go over to an interview with Brett Bowles, who you might know from TikTok or Instagram Reels as the MT. He's a fantastic music teacher who's going to help us break down the music in some of our favorite movies. This is the The Film Film and Whiskey Whiskey Podcast. Well, hey there, everybody. Welcome into the Film and Whiskey Podcast. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we're coming at you with uh, the first bonus Ooh. episode of this bum, season. Bum, bonus episode. Man, we have gotten through three, re- three weeks of Clint Eastwood. Some of the heaviest and saddest movies we've ever watched for this podcast. Back to back to back, Brad. Yeah, very, very interesting movies. I like my perspective on Clint has changed a lot in the last few years. I got to say, man, uh, putting him under scrutiny as a director, not just as an actor, not just as like a a movie star or a figure, but looking at how he directs films. I got to say, I really, really have a ton of respect for him as an auteur in a way that I, I probably didn't before this series. Well, the the thing for me that's hard to judge about Clint is that he is so prolific in his directing. Mm-hmm. Like he I mean, he probably has 30 movies to his. name. Oh, yeah, at least. I mean, probably more than that. It's probably closer to 50 that he's directed. Oh, yeah. On top of 50 or 60 that he only acted in. Right. I'm going to look it up. You go ahead and vamp a little bit. OK, well, the reason I bring that up is to say. I I went through a lot of his movies on IMDb and a lot of them have anywhere from like a five to a seven mm-hmm. out of 10, which, you know, is not exactly a high score on IMDb. Not so much. And so it's it's interesting to me uh, to when I think about most what we would call auteurs, I think about people who only make a small amount of movies. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like you think about somebody like... Uh, um, Quentin Tarantino like he's like I'm gonna make 10 movies and that's it and I I, I've or Terrence Malick who comes out with a movie every like 37 years (laughs) so Eastwood has 45 directing credits to his name on IMDb gosh yeah yeah and, and so that's the hard part for me is I feel like I've 
barely scratched the surface of him by watching, you know, at this point, we watched three now, and we're only going to judge him based on those three movies, but <laughs> we have watched four of his films, yep. and I feel like I've barely even gotten to know Clint. We have watched less than 10% of his directorial output, and yet, yeah. here we are making a definitive statement on how good he is as a director. <laughs> yep. So let me, let me set the scene here. Last season, we did a bonus episode called What Makes a Good Director, and we basically decided, hey... Let's find a fun way to do what all artists hate and uh, score out how good a director is based on some metrics. And then when we put them through a metric, we can tell how good they are. And so we went back and forth determining, like, what are the categories that you would judge just any director on their abilities? And we came up with a really interesting list. It's not what I necessarily would have thought would have been the five categories, but we shook out to... Actually, Brad, why don't you why don't you give us our five categories? I don't have it pulled up here in front of me. Yeah. So the categories that we have and remember, all of these are nuanced by how the director influenced these areas. So performances, what kind of performances did the director draw out of his actors? Uh, cinematography, you know, when I look at the screen, what do I see on screen and how did the director's choice affect all of that? Editing, this includes visual and audio, so the score for the movie, the sound effects, the things like that, and then you throw in there all of the visual things, the transitions from scene to scene. Then we talk about cohesion. How well do do his movies work together within themselves? Do they have glaring holes? Are there issues that we had with maybe the plot or with the style of the movie you know like i'm thinking about um goodfellas how the last few minutes of the movie feel stylistically so much different because you know henry is on cocaine and then finally we're we're talking about uniqueness within this director's era how unique are his films how how much do they stand out among the crowd. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so those are our five categories. Performances, cinematography, editing, cohesion, and uniqueness. Last season, what we started doing was we took each director that we did a miniseries on and we put them through that metric. We released those episodes as bonus episodes exclusively to the patrons on our Patreon page. So if you'd like to hear those, you can go right on over to patreon.com slash film whiskey and sign up at one of our three support tiers. However, this season, we're bringing him to the public. We're going to start with Eastwood and we're going to put him through this metric based only on the three movies that we watched for him. So we're talking about Unforgiven, Mystic River and Gran Torino. Brad, I don't think we really need to beat around the bush here anymore. Let's jump right in. And I think, unfortunately... The category that we're going to start with might be the one that he gets the weakest score in because it's performances. And this is really weighed down by the performances in Gran Torino, where the actual professional actors are given such bad dialogue that they are not doing a good job. And then everyone else in the movie who isn't named Clint Eastwood is not a professional actor. And so they're not good because they're not actors. And like, I hate to say it this way, but Mystic River had really great performances. Unforgiven, really great performances. But when it comes to Gran Torino, I think it really does kind of weigh down this score. I'm only going to give him a seven out of 10 here on performances. Yeah, I'm I'm actually right below you at a 
I think that the Schofield kid in Unforgiven was the roughest acting performance of that film. I think Mystic River was all around like really solid. But outside of Sean Penn and Tim Robbins, I don't know if anybody really stood out to me in that film. Hmm. So I, you know, so I, I think that's easily his best film from a acting performance standpoint. And then you get to Gran Torino, which kind of just tanks his score here. So uh, unfortunately, I, I think we're off to a little bit of a rough start. But yeah, I mean, where, I, I don't know, man. Let, well, hold on. Let me let me say this. I feel weird giving him a seven or a six and a half because it should be noted that in the three movies we watched, there are three Oscar winning performances. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. So it says something that three of the highest lauded performances of his directing career are balanced out by how bad we thought the performances were in Gran Torino. Yeah. Well, also... If I'm being really blunt, the legend of Clint is that he doesn't give his actors any direction. And so I guess maybe it's hard for me to give him credit for Oscar wins in those categories. Mm. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, he still did direct them technically, but yeah, you know, I got to say, too, I think we got two really, really great Eastwood performances in these three movies. Yeah. You know, between Unforgiven and Gran Torino. And then, you know, you and I have recently we rewatched uh, Million Dollar Baby as well. And I know that we're not considering that here, but just to see the level of nuance between those three characters and how he's doing variations on Clint, but they're not the same Clint, mm-hmm. I think really does speak to how good of an actor he is, too. But again, our scores are our scores. And it's time for us to move into cinematography. Now, again, this is not just the shot composition, but how does Eastwood use the camera? How does he move the camera? How does he uh, and his cinematographer use light and darkness and shadow and mood? And I think that this is really where Eastwood shines, because in Unforgiven, he's working with the language of the Western, the visual language of movies like The Searchers, which he's constantly calling back to. And then in a movie like Mystic River and Grant Reno. He's in his like million dollar baby phase where everything is almost black and white, desaturated, super strong uh, shadows and mood lighting. And it really works. I think all three of these movies, the visual cues and the visual language of the movies work really, really well for the subject matter. I'm going to give him a nine out of ten here. I'm with you. I'm at a nine out of ten. I think that there's certain places in Unforgiven where it almost feels too bright. And and it's almost like the cameras were too high quality to film a Western. Mm. Like, like when I think about Westerns, I don't think about high quality cameras. And so the, there was a little bit of a struggle there for me. But overall, I, I think that Clint does a really great job with the camera and knowing how quickly he shoots his movies. It makes it almost more impressive to me that he's able to capture these images in such a way that he wants so quickly. Okay, that takes us to editing. Now, again, we understand that Clint Eastwood is not the editor of these movies, but the director is ultimately responsible for how his or her movies hold together. We're going to get into cohesion as well here in a minute. But with editing, it's like what we see on screen from the shots to the flow of the movie. And we're also factoring in things like sound. I think a lot of directors really rely on their ability to create soundscapes like a Christopher Nolan 
you want to go watch a Nolan movie in theaters, not just because it's loud, but it's because the guy knows what he's doing when he's building soundscapes. He may not know how to make Bane sound intelligible, but the guy <laughs> knows how to use the soundtrack. So with Clint Eastwood, it's a little scattershot because I think Unforgiven is probably the strongest of the three when I think about how tightly constructed it is. Mystic mm -hmm. River was a little bit shaggy. And uh, Gran Torino had whole subplots that could have been removed. But what I will say is that I think he's very underrated in his use of sound. I thought that the sound in all three of these movies was surprisingly great. And I remembered these being like really small dramas, but they all had very good sound design. And you got to credit Clint with that a little bit. So I don't know, man, where are you coming out on this one? I'm at an eight out of ten. I think he does a, a pretty solid job the way he moves movies along with his editing. And I, I'm with you. I think his sound design overall is really solid. You also, though, have to take into account that he composes a lot of music for his movies. And I think it works really, really well in Unforgiven and not so well, but not terrible in Mystic River. And then he sings at the end of Gran Torino. <laughs> so that that definitely bumped my score down a little bit. I might have been at an eight and a half, but but I'm sitting at an eight. I'm going to give him an eight as well. I think everything you said, I agree with, Brad. And that is a perfect segue into talking about the cohesion of his movies. How do these things hold together? Do you know, it's kind of like when we give whiskeys a score and we talk about the overall balance. Did anything stand out in a positive or negative way? Or did it seem like a consistent experience across Unforgiven? Absolutely a consistent experience. Mystic River, a couple little bumps in the road, but overall very good. Gran Torino, uh, you know, I imagine that the pothole streets of Detroit are a good metaphor for, for the ride <laughs> I went on in that movie. And so, yeah, man, this once again, it's really hard because it's like I'm going to give you a 10 for Unforgiven. I'm going to give you like an eight and a half for Mystic River. I'm going to give you like a six for Gran Torino. I guess I'll shake out to. A seven and a half here. <laughs> this is a really boring episode. Are we, are we in the same I, spot? I'm, I'm in the exact same spot. Seven and a half. It like not not as good as his, as his editing. Gran Torino just. Oh man, I feel bad for saying it, but it's really dragging down his his ratings here. I think. All right, and now it comes to uniqueness, and this is, I think, a place where a lot of people on the surface, wouldn't say like, oh, Clint Eastwood is a super unique director because he's pretty like no nonsense, no frills. He's, I wouldn't call him the most artistic director. I wouldn't say that his shot compositions are always the best, especially like in Gran Torino. Like it just kind of seems like there's a camera kind of floating around, but it's not always in the best place. However, you can't divorce the fact that Clint Eastwood is a movie star from who Clint Eastwood is as a director because we've been saying it for weeks and weeks now. Almost every movie that we reviewed this season for him and even taking Million Dollar Baby into account from years ago on this podcast is a commentary on Clint Eastwood's own stardom and the kinds of movies he used to make and the kinds of themes that he feels like he needs to correct or amend or give new thoughts on. And I think because of that, he makes these dark brooding movies and he's not the only person to make dark, brooding movies, but he's the only person that can make a movie like that where it has an automatic second layer built into it just because he made it. 
And mm-hmm. I think because of that, he's an incredibly unique filmmaker. I'm going to give him a 10 out of 10 here. <laughs> I'll give him a nine and a half out of 10. I, I think that I, I'm with you in all those ways. And I think that what makes Clint such a unique director is is kind of twofold. A, he just doesn't give a rip what anybody says about him. Like, I, I can't imagine that his poorly rated movies have any effect on him any more so than his highly rated movies mm. does. But secondly, I think what really makes him unique is his ability to take stories and kind of turn them on their head. And w- the story that he continually turns on its head, and, and Bob, you're the one who pointed this out, so I'll, I'll give you the credit here. He continually questions why we are obsessed with violence and forces his movie watchers to reckon with what violence brings about in the world. And I think that all three of these movies do that in their own unique ways. And I just haven't seen many directors sit on that subject for a large part of their career. So I think he's a fantastically unique director. All right, Brad. So that is bringing me out to a 41.5 out of 50 on Clint Eastwood as a director. What are you coming out to? Uh, Just a point lower, 40.5. All right. So that's taking us to an average of a 40 out of 50. It does feel really weird to like numerically score a director (laughs) and be like, he is exactly this good. Because again, like we're only dealing with three of his movies right now. But I think... You know, even considering the the rocky relationship we have with Gran Torino, it says a lot about the guy that he's still coming out to a 40 out of 50 here. Yeah, I, I think that Clint is truly one of the most fascinating directors I've watched in a long, long time. And I think it's it comes back to what you said, Bob. When you've lived in the movie world for this long, it only makes sense that you start to question all of the roles you portrayed earlier in life. Mm-hmm. And so, I, yeah, I, I love Clint. I'm a little sad to see his score come out this low, Bob. Yeah. Well, it is what it is, man. The metric does not lie, Brad. It's, it sure doesn't, man. All right, Brad, it is time for us to sip a couple of whiskeys before we get over into this interview with Brett Bowles. So let's crack open some Virginia Distillery Company. What do you say? Let's get to it. All right, everybody. Today, we are going to be taking a look at the Virginia Distilling Company, specifically their lineup of four whiskeys under the Courage and Conviction. Uh, I wouldn't even call it brand. Like It's just their lineup that's called Courage and Conviction. That's right, Brad. Uh, entering the canon of famous pairs here, you know, pride and prejudice, <laughs> sense Courage and sensibility. And... <laughs> yes. Courage and Cur- conviction. So yeah, Virginia Distillery Company is a a distillery that we have not had on the show ever before, but I've seen their product all over the place. And I guess if you could say that they have two main lines of whiskey, one is this Courage and Conviction, which is carried, I think, a little bit further distribution wise. And then the other one is a kind of specialty cask finished series that they call the VHW series. We have two samples uh, of those whiskeys from the distillery that we will get to on a later bonus episode. But we figured, hey, we're drinking four whiskeys for you guys. Like, cut cut us some slack here, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I I will say, in the past, we have been sent, you know, five, six, seven samples from companies before, and we've drank them all in one sitting. And nope. 
No hey, more. I, I, yeah, I think it gets to be a little too much for you guys to hear more than three or four whiskeys in a row. It also gets to be a little too much for us. Yeah. Uh, that's that's a lot of whiskey to drink. I and gotta go to bed, dude. Like this. I, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so Virginia Distillery Company's specialty is American single malt whiskey, which is a category that is rapidly growing, but there are still only a few really big players in that uh, vein. And I think our favorite to this point, Brad, has been McCarthy's out of Oregon, Mm -hmm. which was just some stellar, stellar stuff. Uh, Yeah, I I was going to say, yeah, and I I think Old Line out of Maryland was a really good option that I I enjoyed quite a bit. I liked Old Line a lot, too. So, yeah, we've got four whiskeys here to drink. It's their Baseline uh, Courage and Conviction single malt whiskey, and then we've got the Courage and Conviction finished in bourbon casks, sherry casks, and cuvee casks. So we will get to all three of those, but Brad, we're going to start with this you know, just their standard courage and conviction. And let's dive right in, man. This is a 92 proof American single malt whiskey. What are you picking up on the nose? Yeah, this is a very pleasant nose. Mm -hmm. Uh, For me, it's a strong malted barley opening. And the, the more I let it open up some, I get some butterscotch. There's some dark roast coffee notes. And then almost like uh, almost like some fur, fresh, like evergreen fur sprigs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? This has the brightness to it that Irish whiskey and most blended scotches that we drink have. Mm-hmm. And again, like yeah. Brad, you know, aside from bourbon, I think scotch is probably our most drunk uh, expression of whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> and yet I still feel like we don't, you and I don't have the language down quite well enough yet when it comes to scotch whiskey to describe. So forgive me if I'm comparing this, this is a single malt whiskey. I don't mean to compare it negatively to a blended whiskey. That's not at all what I mean. But when I think about something like the McCarthy's that we had that lives in that sort of, and that one was, I think peated as well. It lives mm-hmm. in that sort of like really high tier single malt scotch. This one yeah. is much more approachable. And I think it's probably intended to be that too. It's got the the sort of floral and the melon that you get on some Highland scotches, uh, but it's being made in America. I'm really, really excited to try this because those are like my, if I'm going to drink a scotch and it's not one that I intend to knock my, you know, like blow me back in my seat with its peat, this is the kind that I like. So I'm I'm really excited to see one made here in America. Let's give this a sip, man. Yeah, as I got into the palate here, the barley really comes across strong, that that malted barley flavor. For me, though, there was some fresh herbs that went along with it. And uh, the longer I sat with it, it got some really nice vanilla notes. Mm-hmm. Overall, I, I don't think it was quite as complex as I was hoping it to be, though. I actually was pleasantly surprised. I think I'm in a different spot than you on this one. This one had a level of sweetness that those, you know, blended scotches and Irish whiskeys don't usually have. And it's not honey. It was vanilla and caramel that had a very like robust American whiskey palette to it with that like really big, bold maltiness underneath. I will say that like the char on this, the sort of smokiness you get is much closer to like cigarette ash than it is peat. So if you're not mm-hmm. ready for like a really strong wood fire, like burnt sensation, then like you just need to be prepared for that on the finish here. But overall, I, I'm really impressed with this, honestly, Brad, and I'm excited to get into this bourbon finished one, which is the first of the three finishes we're doing. Yeah, I, I think that the bourbon cask 
for me, it, it had a very similar nose to the first one, but with like a caramel twist to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that fair? Like, I, I don't want to be reductionistic, but it is extraordinarily similar. And then I'm like, oh, there's, yeah, there's a little bit of brown sugar. There's kind of a caramely feel to it more than an actual nose. Yeah, I, honestly, it's so similar that I'm not really picking up a lot of difference here. But I'm wondering if part of that is, it sounds stupid, but, you know, we talk about in wine, uh, the idea of like terroir and how the land that you're getting the grapes from and where you're making the wine really affects the wine. And people have started talking about that in whiskey. And I kind of wonder if there's just something about making it in America that imparts that bourboniness to it, even though it's being made Mm -hmm. out of barley. I I have no idea, man. I I think it's going to present itself more on the taste if anywhere but the nose is extraordinarily similar yeah i i think for me the palate is where this one changed it became a lot more creamy you know the the barley came through strong but there was caramel there was vanilla and then it, it almost turned cheesecake richness to me that I, I this one definitely was a step up from their first expression this is definitely i think the word the two words you used creamy and rich are perfect for this However, I think that it made the sweet notes stand out a little bit, but I lost the melon and I lost that like cigarette kind of ashy burn to it as well. So it like it rounded off the rough edges, but I think it's more a matter of like personal preference. Like, do you like something that has three or four really bold flavors back to back to back? Or do you like something that's like a little bit more well-rounded? I think I actually prefer the original to the bourbon cask, but I could see where you're liking that one better. Yeah, I think it just came across, especially the creaminess came across to me as something I would just enjoy more. Mm -hmm. But that brings us over to our third expression, which is the courage and conviction finished in sherry casks. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if we said this, Bob, but all of these are clocking in at... 46% ABV or 92 proof. Once again, on the nose here, for me, it was more of the same, maybe some cherry notes going on. But man, I like uh, all three of these. uh, I don't I don't I don't know. I don't want to sound mean, but they all smell kind of like the same whiskey to me. Yeah, I feel that. I think that this one is just a tad closer, you know, like our very first ever sherry finished whiskey was Glenmorangie back in season mm, one. Yeah. Like yep. this is a step even closer to a Highland Scotch. And in particular, I think it's that uh, Glenmorangie La Santa from season one. It's like, there's not a lot of grapiness on it, but it has a very classic sherry finished Scotch whiskey nose to it. And it's like, you know, if uh, if the, the first two Courage and Convictions were like 80% of the way to be, to smelling exactly like those, this is 90% of the way to smelling like that. And again, I don't want to give the impression that it has to taste like or it has to smell like scotch whiskey to yeah. to be something on its own merits. Like, I don't want this to be exactly like scotch whiskey or else, like, why why should it exist? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, what, like, what are we doing here? Right. So I, I do like that it is a little bit more in that wheelhouse, though, because I'm picking up some pretty s- subtle changes here. Yeah. And when I got into the palate, it became much more tart for me mm. there was definitely some cherry almost like a cherry cordial going on mm-hmm. with a little bit of like dark chocolate there were some fig notes in there uh once again the barley comes through very strongly here 
And so the, those are that's kind of where I was sitting at on the palette, Bob. What about you? Yeah, I think that the the influence of the sherry is way stronger on this one than the bourbon was on the bourbon finished one. Like there is that sort of really, really dark grape note on this. Like it's almost like it's, to me, it's almost more like a Pinot Noir than it is a, a sherry on this. There's it's not super tannic. But the the sweetness has almost been completely absorbed by that sort of I think fig is a good word for it, Brad. But for me, it was almost more pruney than anything else. I actually really like this, but it is for sure uh, the most different one of the three that we've had so far. Yeah. Yeah. And then the fourth one is a cuvee cask, Mm -hmm. which I'll I'll be honest with you, Bob. I don't know what cuvee is. (laughs) Uh, I, I think that's the uh, the shopping network that all of our grandparents is it Q, QVC? <laughs> I was literally going to make that joke ah! earlier. <laughs> Dad jokes galore on film and whiskey. Nailed it. <laughs> all right, so as we get into nosing this cuvee finish, Brad, like for you, is it closer to the sherry finish? Is it closer to the bourbon finish, or is it its own thing? Uh, I think it's much closer to the sherry cask. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I got like grapes red berries like all, like all of all of those fruity notes for me mixed with the malted barley i will say the when i sat with this one this one gave me the most unique note it was almost like you know the little tin of hershey's cocoa uh-huh. that like kid, kids think is hot chocolate and it 100% is not <laughs> yes yeah that like i got a note of that on this nose i it like that very interesting you know what this this I think does the best job of balancing everything that came before it. Like there is a super strong caramel note on this. Like it's vanilla, but it's definitely caramely, but it also has the most fruitiness to it. And the fruit is really bright. Like you, you mentioned berries. I do think like raspberry is something that I'm really getting pretty strongly on this. So it's, it's almost like a more tart grape or raspberry kind of note to go along with that super bourbony caramel note. I like this a lot. I think this is the most complex nose of the four. What did you think of the taste, Brad? I really liked it. The, this for me was my favorite of of the four expressions. There was some raspberry. The vanilla turned stronger into almost like a vanilla bean flavor mm-hmm. to mix with the malted barley. This was the first one I got that uh, almost had a little bit of oakiness going on that I, I, I thought brought out some nice flavors. Hmm. Overall, I think this one, it's not head and shoulders above the rest, but for me, it's the clear winner. You know why I love you, Brad G? It's because that, Robert Book? It's because you and I are so wildly different as people. Because, like, <laughs> this is, this is, I mean, I'm drinking all four of these live. You, you drank them before we press record. I'm trying them as we talk about them. This one did not work for me at all. And, like, I think those, like, cigarette ashy notes came up pretty strongly towards the end and like a very bitter grape note. However, this is the cool thing about experimental finishes, right? And like, you know, I have no idea if Virginia distillery is going to be listening to this or not, but like, I don't think anyone there would be offended by me saying this is my least favorite of the four. It doesn't mean I think it's bad, bad. It doesn't mean that I don't think anyone should drink it. And you've clearly said you think it's your favorite of the four. So, like, this is what's cool about finishing whiskeys in different casks, about experimentation. I think if I was going to rank mine out, Brad, I would go sherry finish, original, bourbon, and cuvee. What would you do? 
Um, I think I would honestly go cuvee bourbon regular <laughs> sherry. Of course, I think we're like complete opposites of each other. And I think that that's that's a fantastic endorsement of this distillery. Like I'm really looking forward to these two other samples that they sent us that we'll we'll do like I said on a future bonus episode. But for now, I think what you need to know is that if you are in America, I don't know what their distribution outside the U.S. looks like. If you see courage and conviction on the shelf, it is like for me, the the number one thing I can say about it is that I respect so much that they're embracing the experimentation from expression to expression. I think that your best bet, like if you're going to go right down the middle, is to just buy the original version. But honestly, Brad, this makes me kind of nostalgic because it reminds me of that Glenn Morangy sampler we did in season one. like. Yeah. This is so similar to that in that the different finishes they're adding to their original kind of, you know, uh, baseline offering really do add so many complex layers to it. And it's like, wow, we find America gets one of these now. We have a single malt <laughs> distiller that's doing this kind of thing. Yeah. I was going to say Virginia Distillery Company, the Glen Morangy of America. <laughs> I'm sure they'll love getting sued by putting that slogan on things. All right, Brad, it is time for us to get over to our interview with the world famous TikToker. Uh, do I sound old enough when I say TikToker? Yeah, yes, you, right, you sound right. sufficiently old enough. Let's get over to our interview with our friend Brett Bowles. What do you say? Let's get to it. All right, everybody, we are joined by our new friend and uh we're kind of fanboys of him a little bit bob yeah. yeah brett bowles who's known as the mt on tiktok and on your instagram reels i'm sure you've seen him if you're a follower of our podcast brett how are you this evening i am terrific how are you guys oh, we're doing great it is it's so nice to be able to like have a conversation with you and know that you have not like busted out the patented brett bowles singing voice yet I don't I don't think I've ever interacted with any bit of you for more than 30 seconds without hearing that uh, baritone you've got. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. <laughs> so if you're not if you're not familiar with Brett, he is uh, a voice coach, a music teacher, and he's blowing up on our phones recently. He has, like I said, it's called the MT, where he breaks down music theory from some of your favorite shows, movies, general i think disney is kind of like where i've seen you camping out the most i'm i'm sure that gets you a lot of views but i i get a wave of nostalgia every time i see you dive deep into the music theory behind some of our favorite songs i i don't think you're alone in that one of the reasons <laughs> i do the, a lot of disney yeah, I was going to say, for me, one of the first ones i remember seeing from you brett was the prince of egypt discussing the plagues song uh and yeah. that, A, it's one of the greatest musical songs ever written for an animated feature, in my opinion. It's so good. It's strange, though. I, I, when I started covering that, I think I started, I did that one two years ago, and I started it um, around Passover week, obviously. Okay. And, um, you know, I've always loved that particular song, but it wasn't. That's not the one that I take away from the film. So I was surprised when so many people gravitate toward that song. Um, I didn't realize how much of like a Tell cult following like just that song has. Yeah. Um, but it was pretty fascinating for me. Which one to, which one sticks out for that. you? I love Through Heaven's Eyes. That's yes. that's my 
favorite. Yeah. Yes, Brett. Yeah. I I was gonna say we listened to that song with our daughters on repeat, and she just absolutely loves it. And I, I'm with you. If you if you are into the whole Christianity thing and religion, the the theology in that song it, it it's one of the best written songs I think I've ever heard. But then on top of that, it's just absolutely beautiful. Oh, it's gorgeous. And Brian Stokes Mitchell singing on it doesn't hurt it either. So. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. So uh, followers of our podcast will know that Brad was stumping for us to get The Prince of Egypt on the show for years and years because it's one of his favorite movies. And me being a stickler, I was like, no, it, it needs to be classic films that we're reviewing. And then we did a season a couple years ago where we each just kind of picked 15 of our favorite movies, whether they were good or bad movies that, that had some really deep memories for us. And so we watched The Prince of Egypt. And the thing I love about The Prince of Egypt, it kind of correlates with the movie that I picked for that season, which was The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And after The Lion King and through to the end of the decade in the 1990s, it seemed like studios went all in on not just, you know, animated musicals, but in making them as intricate and maximalistic as possible. You know, I, I've heard you talk a little bit about the D.A.C. Ray in uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame. It's kind of the same thing for me with Prince of Egypt, like the orchestrations, the, uh, the incredibly layered choral arrangements. It's like it, they reached their pinnacle with those two movies. And then after a couple of them didn't perform super well at the box office, it feels like the early 2000s are just kind of a wasteland for for musicals from my childhood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good point, actually. <laughs> Interesting. So, so Brett, let's go back a little bit. Let's talk about your history and how you got to this point. So, I know you you went to school for music theory, right? Uh, I went, yeah, I went to school for composition, okay. uh, for music composition at Ithaca, um, with a with an emphasis in musical theater. So I'm a musical theater writer, so um, that's really what I wanted to do, and I still do it. And I, my, the focus of my four years at school was to write a musical that would be produced by the by the theater department as a, as a main stage musical because no student had ever done that before. So I was like, I'm going to do this. Um, and so I did. And we did an adaptation. I did an adaptation of um, The Count of Monte Cristo uh, before Frank Wildhorn wrote his. And it was performed my <laughs> senior year. And those of you who are musical theater people, um, if you know who Jeremy Jordan is, big name in mm -hmm. musical theater, um, he was, we went to school together the we same year and he actually starred in that show uh, in college when we were in college together. You can actually find it on YouTube. If you look up my name or his name in The Count of Monte Cristo, you'll see some clips of us as babies doing that show during college. Brett, I'm going to look that up. The Count of Monte Cristo is one of my favorite classic novels. Oh, like, it's so good. It was like my dad's favorite book. And yeah, I he got me into it. I started actually started writing it in high school and continued it all throughout college. So I did everything. I did book, music, lyrics, orchestrations, I did the whole thing. Wow. That's pretty incredible. And I wish that, you know, in the wave like post Les Mis, that we had gotten more of those kind of classic literature adaptations for for musical theater. Because I'm like like Brad said, I mean, that book is just it's perfect for for what we were going for in that era. Like, I wish that I wish that we'd gotten more like that. And uh, so, they're so expensive to produce, you know? Yeah, that's true, too. <laughs> <laughs> so you get out of school and uh, for years and years and years, you are a vocal coach and a choir teacher. And I'm really interested to hear, you know, the transition from like the day to day teaching teenagers to then 
living on the app that they are on constantly. Like, what's that transition like for you as a as an educator? Is it awkward for you? Is it awkward for them? So, uh, okay, so I, this is my fifth year uh, teaching in public school. So before I started teaching in high school, I was doing private voice lessons and I would I, I music directed shows locally and around whatever. But um, right around when the pandemic hit, uh, the kids have been talking about TikTok a lot. And I'm notoriously terrible at anything social media related. Well, not anymore, <laughs> but I used to be. Um, and so I sort of, we were home and I was teaching, I was teaching my half hour classes from my house. And I had a summer, that summer, there was nothing going on. I usually direct a show over the summer and obviously none of, none of that was happening. So right around winter break of that following year, I decided to give this a shot. Um, and I thought, you know what, I'll let me go and try to meet people where they are in terms of how songs are written and how songwriters think. And it it turns out that I, I think I was uniquely positioned as a writer and as an educator and as a performer to kind of tackle this in a way that nobody else really had. And I thought if I can just educate maybe 300 new people. I thought that would be great, you know, and never, never thinking in a million years that it would blow up the way that it did. Um, but I, I, if you look at the, the very beginning of my video feed, like the very beginning of it, the first, like, you know, weeks, week or two worth of videos, I had it set up so that like my, my ring light and my camera was in front of me looking at me. And I was sort of sitting at the keyboard, but you couldn't really see the piano. And Ultimately, I decided, and this was the teacher in me, that like maybe it would be better to place the camera to the side so you could sort of see the piano and I could turn and it would almost be like you were just sitting next to me and I was just talking to you like you were one of my students. And that's when things started to catch on. Mm-hmm. And I think it had a lot, actually, I think it had a lot to do with the with the positioning of the camera and the the style of which I was starting to do things. So um that was, but that's my experience as a teacher. So I think it all sort of came together in this nice serendipitous way. Um, and the thing took off. No, it's, yeah, yeah. it certainly did that. Brad, I don't mean to step on you, but I mean, uh, it's grown to, I think you're at like 375,000 followers on TikTok now. I mean, did on you TikTok, ever, yeah. <laughs> did you ever, um, did you ever imagine it getting to this point? And I mean, do you think it's more people responding to, finding out new things about their favorite songs or is it in some ways people having confirmed for them like why they loved these songs in the first place like the feedback that you get from people what do you think it is that has made it catch on so much um i i think the 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 comments that i get the most of are i'm listening to music in a new way like i it's like almost like i i I liken it to a sense that you never knew you always had mm-hmm. and you just sort of need somebody to break it down to you in language that you can understand. And my, my goal from the very beginning was to be able to reach anyone regardless of their level of knowledge or experience. So I try not to use too much musical jargon because a lot of people don't understand that. Um, and I try to break it down in ways that are really accessible. So I think people are hearing songs in ways that they never knew that they could. And that's exciting. And I think once you start to listen to songs that way, it's hard to stop. Uh, and you mm-hmm. want to. And I think you appreciate the craft more when you know what's going on. It's not like a magic trick where it spoils the trick if you know how it's done. Um, it's one of those things that gives you a deeper appreciation for uh, for the songs that you know and love. So I think that's what people are, are reacting to. Mm-hmm. I remember being really, really young and, you know, watching movies and stuff. And at a certain point, you know, I was probably like seven, eight, nine years old. 
I realized that the music in movies wasn't just like a part of the movie. It was something that people played on instruments. Do you like do you guys remember having that realization at some point in your childhood? Yeah, like learning that a movie is all pretend and directed and that there's people yeah. in front of cameras. Yeah, the, the music's totally exactly. part of that. Yeah. And, and I, I I have a specific memory of realizing like, oh, the the music, like I probably saw something on TV on like PBS or something of an orchestra playing a movie score and being like, oh, wow, this is a different part of it. And it feels like ever since then, I've slowly like dove deeper and deeper into like, it's not just like not a part of it. It's like a whole thing. And Brett, I I feel like your your pocket of the internet speaks to that process in such a way where people can move from, okay, I know that the music in the movie is made by people. Let's figure out more and more and more. And, And it's that educational side of it that makes people go, oh, man, like I already love this music and now I get to learn more about it. Like, that's awesome. Yeah, well, you don't uh, you don't know what you don't know sometimes. And so when when people realize that composers who write to film or for film are are making conscious decisions about where they're placing notes, how they're constructing melodies and harmonic motion and what instruments are playing what and that there's a reason for all of those choices to, you know, for lack of a better word, to manipulate your emotions. I mean, that's a cool thing to realize if you never really knew that or understood it, or maybe you knew that, but didn't really understand how it all worked. Um, and so it's just a really cool thing for for people to learn, I think. Absolutely. So I imagine that at this point, you've had this question asked of you hundreds and hundreds of times, but people see you talking about specific pieces of music, specific songs on, you know, Instagram reels, TikTok, whatever. What would you suggest as like the the baseline general rules for, okay, I've been watching Brett Bowles. I want to apply this this kind of thinking to all of the music that I take in in my life, whether it's accompanying a, a movie or a TV show or whatever, if it's just something on the radio. What are your kind of general guidelines for people who are starting to develop that ear for interesting music theory or kind of compositional observations? So I think it all it all comes down to prosody, right? And that's the thing that I that I talk about more than anything else is is um, is prosody, and that is how all the elements of a particular song or a piece of music work together to tell the same story. So. Mm-hmm. In a musical, for example, you have lyrics and you have music, right? That those are the the, the primary um, the the primary pieces that come together to tell a story. And so, as a writer, as a songwriter, um, if you're constructing a song, you want to make sure that your music is helping the lyric tell whatever story the lyric is telling. So, you know, on a, on a very basic level, it can be something as simple as if the character is singing about looking up at the sky or something that the music would probably be moving in some kind of upward trajectories to, to mirror that. Um, it can be as simple as that. Uh, it can also be, now in the case of something like film music, for example, I did a whole thing about um, the, the beginning of the movie up the, the mm-hmm. Pixar Disney Pixar film up. Yeah. And, now that gets more into into harmonic structure and Michael Giacchino, who does 
the same thing in, in Inside Out that he does in Up, and he uses, he bases everything on a, a major seven chord. So that's that's a a minor chord stacked on top of a major chord. So essentially it's a major chord and a minor chord together, which creates a sense of melancholy mm-hmm. um, because on a very basic, 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 basic level, major chords are the quote-unquote happy chords and minor chords are the quote-unquote sad chords, even though it's a very, very, very basic um, explanation of it. But when you put those two things together, it creates this sense of melancholy. And so a lot of times when when the ear is hearing something that's different from what the eye is seeing, it creates, it, it trips this wire in our brain and it makes us feel something. So as, you know, Mr. Fredrickson is going back into his house after Ellie dies, we hear this alternate, uh, this, um, uh, all these alternate chords playing. It's an F major seven and then an F major and an F major seven and an F major. And you're wondering like, where is it going to land, right? We have this really melancholy chord followed by what we normally would think of as a happy chord, but something really sad has just happened. And when he closes the door and goes back into the house, the very last thing we hear is it settles on an F major chord. And it just does something to you inside. It like makes you well up with tears and it tugs at your heartstrings because what you're seeing and what you're hearing are not the same thing. So you have this cognitive dissonance going on and it's a really powerful thing to use in film music. I love it. I could sit here and listen to this all day. I think maybe, maybe the best application of it is if we talk about a specific movie and Brett, as you and I were kind of going back and forth through email, we settled on talking about what is, I mean, still uh, a couple years after its release, definitely the most popular current Disney musical. And that is Encanto, a movie that uh, has just uh, infected my home with <laughs> unending music for two and a half years now to the I point where like, uh, you know, I'm putting my kids to bed and we're, we're listening to Encanto lullabies. It's not any other kind of lullabies, specifically Encanto. And I have a very interesting relationship with this movie because when Disney released the filmed version of Hamilton in 2020, it hit me in such a way that with Hamilton, it was one of those things where I recognize it almost immediately as the kind of work of art that only comes around every like 10, 15 years that is like so intricate and so dense and uh, just a text that you can return to time and time and time again and find new meanings in and levels of music theory and everything else. And then but when I saw of listening to that, you're, you're I'm listening, listening to Encanto. Well, I'm saying night. so then, you know, Lin-Manuel <laughs> Miranda does Encanto. And I remember walking out of Encanto and being like a little bit let down and I couldn't place why I felt so let down by Encanto. And the more I've watched it, because I have been forced to watch it, I realized I I think the movie would have been much better served, Brad, if Lin-Manuel Miranda had been given free reign to do the entire thing in that sort of opera style that he did Hamilton. I Like, I wish there was no dialogue in that movie. I wish there were no breaks from the music, because even if you just listen to the Encanto soundtrack, every single thing that the actual, you know, in in on Broadway, they would call it the book. Every, everything that the book, the libretto would tell you, Lin-Manuel Miranda has already done e- either in the lyrics or in the musical themes of the music itself. It just, I think the the redundancy of it is what got to me. That's interesting. Brad, you've seen Encanto, right? I have seen Encanto, yeah. What are your general thoughts on Encanto? Uh, I thought that it was a solid like B minus animated uh musical (laughs) i i think that the music overall was really fun and engaging i think the animation style was very bright and and i feel like that's been missing uh the story was a lot better than a lot of other disney stuff lately so (laughs) i overall i enjoyed it i thought it was pretty good 
So, Brett, when Encanto first came across your radar, I mean, like what how do you tackle something like a Lin-Manuel Miranda production? Well, so Lin is is extremely knowledgeable about his craft and and, um, very deliberate uh, in a lot of ways, more deliberate than than many other writers even are Mm -hmm. uh, about his choices and the choices that he makes. And um, so when it comes to him, I like to focus on little moments as opposed to as opposed to taking a macroscopic view mm-hmm. at first and, and just kind of like delight in the little things that he does. This actually, and, and Kanto, my, one of my Encanto videos is what got Lynn to follow me on Instagram. Um, and it was uh, um, that song, What Else Can I Do? Mm-hmm. That Isabel sings. And uh, Isabella, Isabel? Isabella, yeah. Isabella, yeah. Uh, and it, there's a, the, the opening phrase, and one of the opening phrases of that song, there's a there's a four measure phrase followed by a five measure phrase. And it happens right around the words. It's not symmetrical or perfect, but it's beautiful and it's mm. mine. And uh, it's a very deliberate choice that he made to do that four measure phrase followed by the five measure phrase. Because, again, that's prosody. That's the music and the structure of the music supporting the story of the lyric. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, that's the video that he shared on his story and said, you know, quit giving away my secrets, Brett. So um, <laughs> that. <laughs> Which was very cool. Um, but that it's just th- those kinds of choices that he makes are, are so fun to to delight in and, and share with people because um, you're not going to hear that. You know, most people aren't going to hear that on, on First Listen. And, and admittedly, I don't hear a lot of that stuff on First Listen. It takes me looking at the score and going into it. Mm-hmm. Um, to learn all this stuff. So uh, one of the other reasons I love doing all these videos is because I'm learning at the same time everybody else is. I don't always pick up on this stuff on first listen. I sometimes have to look at it and and only through looking at it do I realize, oh my God, that's so cool. I want to talk real quick about like one of my favorite moments because I, I went back and listened again to the Encanto soundtrack just to prepare for this. And one of my very favorite moments, and it's something that like Brett's going to be like, yeah, of course, but I love in the first song in the movie, The Family Madrigal, where Maribel is introducing the whole family. And it follows a very particular rhythm, a very particular pattern, and a very particular melody until they get to Abuela. And then the melody that she sings is, you know, we swear to always help those around us. And it's the melody of a song that comes later on. You know, it's a foreshadowing of a song that comes later on in the movie called Dos Orguitas. And we've already gotten a hint of it in the movie because in the opening scene, we see her husband get slaughtered and the kind of birth of the miracle that is protecting this family. But what I love that they do in that song by allowing her to kind of give a little bit of that foreshadowing through that melody is it's a, it's such an early window into her psychology and what's driving her. And it's not just that she's hard on the family. It's not just that she's forcing them to live up to a standard. It's that when we revisit that melody later on in the movie, in that scene, Dos Orugitas, it is, I mean, it's heart-wrenching because you're finally seeing it from her perspective and you're seeing what she had to go through and the the grief and loss that she's still processing. And then to go back to the family Madrigal where she's talking about Work and dedication will keep the miracle burning, you know, and each new generation must keep the miracle burning. It's it's so like, Brad, I, I don't know. We've talked about, you know, the the therapy elements of that movie before mm-hmm. and, and how everybody needs to be in it in that movie. But to get all of what becomes explicit 
kind of folded in in that lovely little way early on in the movie. I just, it really softens the character of Abuela for me. And I think it's just like, it's a nice little trail of breadcrumbs that you get from the the beginning of the movie into that emotional climax later on. It's it, it's also really cool that in that moment, it shows and illustrates how far apart Abuela and Mirabel are mm. from each other, right? And it's also that same song that brings them then together at the end. So it serves a, it serves the purpose of, of illustrating their the the two extreme ends of their relationship too, which is really cool. Absolutely. I was going to say part of the beauty of learning is not just the initial learning, it's the teaching it to other people. Because like I know people have said this before, but you don't truly learn something until you have taught it to someone else. And and that like really helps it sink in. And I think we can see that in your videos over the years, Brett, because, you know, at the start, you are teaching it at a high level. But it feels like as we've moved on and, and you've done thousands of videos now, it's like your knowledge of all these has deepened just because you've been teaching it so much. Mm-hmm. And that's just been really cool to watch. Yeah. Yeah. It's that's it. As a as a teacher, I love learning just as much as I love teaching, and they both go hand in hand. And uh, this has been not only a, teach, a teaching experience for me, but a learning experience for me. So yeah, it's been awesome. All right, Brett. Before we let you go, I mean, we brought you onto the Film and Whiskey podcast. We can't not talk about movies for like a majority of the time we're here. So stepping out of the world of Encanto, I know you've you've hinted at some other movie related series that you've done on your channel, but is there any movie? Uh, score or song from a movie that you really hope to dive into? Like, is there anything that you'd like to do like a really deep dive on over an extended series of movies or just things that you're like, man, I hope someday I get a chance to do that score. Um, Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, You know, I, I've done, so I've done a few Lord of the Rings things and I've done a few star Wars things. I would, I would really love to just to dig into both of those things even more than I have, just because mm-hmm. there's so there's so much there. Yeah. Um, I mean, Howard Shore and John Williams are both just absolute masters of the craft. Uh, but people have also been asking for um, some of the older, uh, like Enrico Morricone. Um, oh yeah. Uh, films. Oh so, yeah. Yeah. So I may I may like cinema parody. So and and mm-hmm. those kinds of things. I may it may be really cool to to kind of go back and look at some of those too because I haven't done a whole lot of that. Yeah. Um, so that sometimes might be really I, neat. Sometimes I go back and just listen to the good, the bad, and the ugly. And it it's it might just be the best soundtrack ever written. I, like it it is such an incredible piece of composition from start to finish. So yeah, that I'm I'm there all day for that, Brett. Yeah, I think that may be some of the next film things that Although, I, I may go back. Although if you dedicated like a month of your your show, if you will, to Lord of the Rings, I, I don't think anybody would complain. Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> those films are just exquisite. Oh, my God. The music in those films is so good. So one of the things we like to do before we let a guest go, is we put them on the hot seat and we run them through a questionnaire. I'll tell you what, Brett, we're going to let you off a little bit easy, but I do have a, a one burning question and you have to answer immediately as soon as i ask it no thinking about this what is the best john williams score uh star wars oh there you go brad <laughs> let's go i was really star hoping we get an et plug here 
Bob, go home. Yeah, E.T. I know, I know, I know. All right. <laughs> I mean, E.T., John, that main theme from E.T. is great. I was going to say, oh, John fantastic. Williams is the only good thing from E.T. Oh, so. right. <laughs> Man, I didn't think we'd, I didn't think we'd devolve into this. All right, everybody, Brett. this has been Brett Bulls. I, I cannot tell you, Brett, first of all, how thankful we are that you sat down with us for a little bit so that we could tell you. I mean, it's been a long time since I was in choir, and I I look for those kind of musical outlets and those chances to converse with people about really getting intricate with what the music's about. And I feel like I get to have that conversation with you every time I'm watching your videos. So first of all, thank you for that. But Always we want to give you pleasure. we want to give you an opportunity to to plug anything that you have coming up, uh, anything that, you know, you can tantalize us with a little bit because you're a very busy guy and I, you're doing big things now. Starting to. Yeah, I've got some things planned. Um, I do have a I have a a few courses that are, that are going to be coming out soon. I'm starting with a, a lyric writing course. So that's going to be available um, starting next month. Uh, and I'll, after that, shortly after that, I'll be going into a music writing course, um, all sort of tying into songwriting in general. So uh, you can be on the lookout for that. And then I also have, um, I can't announce officially the place where I'm doing this yet, but I'll be doing a live version of what I do on Instagram and TikTok in New York uh, in September. So I have that coming up as well. Oh, that's exciting. All right, Brett, where can people find you? Uh, I am on TikTok at Brett Bowles and then Instagram at the Brett Bowles. Uh, those are my two things. And then YouTube also um, at Brett Bowles. I'm also on YouTube. Well, Brett, we wish you the very best as the school year winds down and in all of your future endeavors. I'm already excited for September. I don't even know what it's about yet, but I've got it marked on my calendar now. September <laughs> September is Brett Bowles month. So, <laughs> All right, Brett, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been a blast. All right, so that was Brett Bowles, uh, a fantastic interview guest. Brad, I was what a like guy. super impressed with how chill he was as we interviewed yeah. him. Because if you've seen his reels or his TikToks, like he's a very high energy music teacher. But we were interviewed him at 8 p.m. And like most teachers, <laughs> not only was his energy like gone for the day, but I've realized that most of the teachers in my life are introverts. I have no idea if Brett's an introvert. But like, it was so cool to just see him be like, yeah, man, like whatever you guys want to do, like, we'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> really, really cool. Yeah. I can't wait to have him back on the show again. Yeah, really an incredible guest and and somebody that I I feel like he would just be a lot of fun to just chill with. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, and there's there's not a lot of people that, that you get to do that with. So, Brett, thank you for coming on the show, man. It was great to have you. All right, we will be back on Tuesday with another regularly scheduled episode. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.